Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we do thank you tonight. We have the wonderful privilege of talking about the Lord Jesus. We thank you that, Father, this love that you've put in our hearts, Father, just lifts him high, just means that he is always in our thoughts, always in our minds. And we can say that we just love him with all of our hearts, even tonight. Father, I do praise you for a wonderful Savior like Jesus. I just want to thank you, Lord, that, Father, as we study these things together, we have the Holy Spirit inside who reveals the truth to us, that we can just hear him saying, Amen, inside of ourselves. And we just thank you, Lord, because the Holy Spirit wants to talk about no one but Jesus. That's all. And, Father, that's what we want to, to talk about no one but Jesus. Oh, Father, I just pray tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name, that we should see the wonderful pedigree that we have, that we have a Father in heaven, that we're born again with imperishable seed. Oh, Father, and I thank you, that means eternal life, face to face with the Lord, forever in his presence. We just thank you, Father, for this quickening that our hearts feel. Oh, Father, I just pray you're going to bless our study tonight, that, Father, we might know an anointing, a real moving of your Spirit upon us, as we study these things. And Father, may at the end of the evening, may it be possible that we could say that tonight we have been with Jesus. Oh, Father, we ask that in the name of the precious Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Tonight we come to the second of the talks on the Messiah. And you remember last time, I hope, that we saw why the Messiah was called the Messiah and we understood something about him being the Anointed One. And one of the important things we saw last time was that Messiah couldn't just be anyone. It was no good having a major political figure or someone who happens to have um, a certain gift or quality to attract people to him for you to become the Messiah. It, It takes more than that. And we saw that Jesus claimed an ancestry last time, the ancestry that was given in the Old Testament. He said, the Old Testament scriptures speak of me. That's what he said. And what he was stating was the fact that in the Bible is contained details of um, the Messiah to come so that anyone might know who is the Messiah and anyone might know who is a false Messiah because many have, have come along. Today I want to talk about the pedigree of the Messiah and to start looking at what the Bible says the Messiah should have in his background. And I think we began last time on point number one and we went over and refreshed ourselves in Genesis 3.15 where we learnt that it was going to be the seed of the woman who was going to actually undo the sin of the man. And we came to the conclusion, and I think I called it point number one in the pedigree of the Messiah, so let's restate it. One, he's going to be a man like you or like me. And we saw that, of course, that means that anyone on the the face of the earth at the moment, at that point of time, perhaps could have fulfilled the uh, claims to Messiahship. Fortunately for us, the claims of Messiahship then get more difficult to fulfill because the Bible gives more details about the pedigree of the Messiah. So number one, he had to be human. Number two, we find there's a restriction occurring. So would you turn, and let's begin tonight, in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 26. And I'm not going to spend very long on this because, of course, it's only two Bible studies ago that we actually covered this in some detail. Genesis 9, verse 26, where God declares that he would have a special relationship with one and one in particular son of Noah. Noah had three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And here God declares, I'm going to be related to the descendants of Shem. And in verse 26, and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And you remember we saw that that meant God's oracles were going to be given to the Semitic people. And that also meant that Messiah, when he was to come, because he was going to represent God and because he was going to be a blessing for all people, he would also be a Semitic man. Now that immediately cuts out, at that time, one-third of huma- uh, two-thirds of humanity and left in only one-third of humanity. For we find all the descendants of Ham now can't be the Messiah. All the descendants of Japheth can't be the Messiah 
but one of the descendants of Shem was going to be the Messiah. Well, I'm sorry for those of you who follow Maharaji Ji. I'm afraid he's Hamitic or perhaps has some Japhetic blood, so he can't be it. Uh, Mr. Moon is out at this particular point, and I'm sorry for those of you who follow him. Karl Marx is still in. He was a Jewish man. He's still in. um, Buddha's out, of course, because he was Hamitic. Allah, uh, or rather Allah's prophet, so-called, Muhammad, he's still in. Mary Baker Ed is out, I'm pleased to say. Rutherford, the Jehovah's Witness uh, founder, he's out. Mrs. Thatcher's out, and Wedgwood Ben's out. So they're, they're cleared from the scene. Two, he's got to be a Semitic man. All right, now that limits it. Three, and let me go through these, the first four very quickly. Turn with me to Genesis 12, 2 and 3. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. For here we've got one man who is a Semitic man, and God makes a promise to him. Verse 2 actually is a covenant God made with him. It's verse 3 we want. And I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and look at this, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What does that mean? Messiah is going to bless all families of the earth, therefore he's going to be a descendant of Abraham. So now we're looking specifically for a Semitic man, but not just any Semitic man, because don't forget the Arabs are Semitic. Now we're looking for a Jewish man. And that's what Jesus actually said, didn't he, to the woman at the well. The salvation is from the Jews. That's the point that he made. Now that has cut Muhammad out at this particular point. All right, so Muhammad now drops by the way. He can't be Messiah. All right, uh, let's then pass on. Number four we come to, Now I'm dealing with these very quickly. In Genesis 26 verse 4, Genesis 26 verse 4, Here we've got Abraham's grandson, and words are said to Abraham's grandson, this is Jacob, that are very similar to the words said to Abraham. Verse 4, And I will make thy seed, Jacob, to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the other descendants of Abraham now drop away. Now it's going to be only a descendant of Jacob who could be the Messiah. Now the first four are very simple, and there they are. We've got three to go, and for the rest of this evening, we're going to talk about the remaining three points in the pedigree of the Messiah. Jacob, as you know, was the father of 12 sons. They were a very mixed bunch. Uh, Most of them were really quite bad lads. And it was going to be through one of the 12 sons that Messiah was going to come. Now the question is, which of the 12 sons is it going to be that Messiah comes from? At first we would have thought Reuben. But of course, Reuben had carnality in his life and he dropped out. Might have been Joseph, might have been Benjamin, could have been Issachar. How are we to know which of the sons it is going to be? And it's at this point that we can rely on prophecy again. Because, fortunately for us, at the end of Jacob's life, Jacob prophesied over each one of his 12 sons. And in the prophecy, he actually directed what was going to happen in their lives. And uh, in these prophecies, we can actually locate which one is going to be the one who will have the Messiah as one of his descendants. So if you turn to me to the chapter that gives the prophecies of Jacob, and that is Genesis chapter 49, we'll actually locate which of the 12 sons Messiah will spring from. Verse 3 and 4 talk about Reuben. Verse 5, 6 and 7 talk about Simeon and Levi. They're dumped together because they're as vile as one another. Verse 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 all talk about Judah, and it is in that passage that we find the reference to the Messiah. For this locates Judah as being the tribe through which Messiah was to come. Now, he says many things about Judah that I don't have time to go into. He's certainly going to be a great man. There's no doubt about it. It begins, for example, uh, in verse 8, saying, Judah... Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be on the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. 
And that's one of the best things that was said of any of the sons. But it's verse 10 that actually we must concentrate on. For in verse 10 we have the most magnificent verse. It says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Praise God. Isn't that a lovely phrase, that last one? Unto him the gathering of the people will be. And what's it talking about? It's talking about that glorious day when Messiah will appear and he'll collect all the Jews from all around the world, he'll whistle for them. The Bible says he whistles for them. Uh, he, he hisses for them in another place. It simply means... <laughs> that's the type of analogy that's given. Come on, time to come home. That's what Messiah will say. Unto him the gathering of the people is going to be. And this tells us something very important. That the Jews as a nation will never be established by Zionism or anything else it is going to take the personal return of the Messiah to bring all the Jews back into the land. Praise God. Another translation of that is simply this. And the nation will be obedient unto him, which is a miraculous statement to be made about the Jewish nation, who've never agreed with anyone, but they're going to be obedient when Messiah comes. Now, this is a verse about Messiah. Verse 10 at the top. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the scepter here was actually a staff. It's the Hebrew word for a staff, and it's the staff of rulership. The staff of rulership was what was carried by the head of the family. And if any of the family gave trouble, the staff used to land on their heads, or on their shoulders, or on some par other part of their anatomy. And this man had the right to wield the staff of authority. And this is quite simply saying that of all the sons that Jacob had, Judah would have the right to rulership over the other sons. Therefore, of course, Messiah would have to come from Judah. And the promise is here that from the time that Judah gets the rulership, he will never lose the rulership. For the scepter will not depart from Judah. The next phrase is very important. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, what does it mean, from between his feet? Well, the picture here is given of a man who may be, say, six feet tall, and he's standing outside his house, and you come up to meet him, and suddenly, between his legs, there's a little son peeping out, a bit shy, a bit afraid of strangers. So he's standing behind Daddy, and he's peering out between his feet to see who the stranger is. And it's a picture of children, and this is an amazing statement, for this is saying that not only will Judah have the rulership, but you'll also see the next generation of rulers coming up in your midst. All right? So that there you are, grand, uh, grandfather Eli ruling at the moment. And what happens? Um, he turns around, and behind him is his son, who's also going to have the rulership, and his grandson, who will have the rulership after him. And it's saying that you will always see the future rulers rising up in your midst. But notice, it, that will be true until Shiloh comes. So in other words, at the point that Shiloh comes, you won't have any children taking over the rulership anymore. Shiloh's going to be the last one. Well, we've got a problem. Okay, Shiloh. What or who is Shiloh? And I must answer that question because it's very important. Shiloh, of course, was a little town in the district of Ephraim, and it was important in Israel's history. This town was the place where the ark and the tabernacle were established between Joshua, who came in and took the land, and the great prophet Samuel. And in that time, Shiloh was the center of worship in Israel. Now, the question is, can this actually mean the place Shiloh? Can it mean that or what? Well, the answer is it can't. And this is very important. Let's consider Samuel. When Samuel died, who was on the throne? Was it Judah? No, it wasn't. Who was on the throne when Samuel died? The answer is Saul was. And Saul was a Benjaminite. He was from Benjamin. Therefore, when Shiloh was the top city or the top a town as far as religious worship was concerned, Judah hadn't yet got the rulership.
So it certainly here can't say that Judah has the rulership until Shiloh comes, because Shiloh was the place where the religious rulership was before Judah came on the sea. All right, so it can't mean that. Just to show you that, let's turn to a psalm where Shiloh is actually mentioned, and you'll understand it. Psalm 78. Psalm 78. All right? And this is a very long psalm. This is recounting the history of Israel. And he's saying, now I took you out of uh, Egypt, I brought you into the land, and what did you do when you got into the land? As soon as you got into the land, you started in idolatry, in unbelief, in all the other things. And he said, and finally, I had to discipline you. And what was the discipline? Verse 60. Psalm 78, verse 60. So that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among men. Right? He forsook Shiloh. If you then go down to verse 67... Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. And there is a statement that the place Shiloh was dropped before Judah got the ascendancy. So certainly Shiloh, the place, can't be the Shiloh that's uh, the town in Ephraim. Therefore, what is Shiloh? Shiloh is one of the names given to the Messiah. It's the only place in Scripture where he's called Shiloh. The Hebrew word Shiloh is very difficult, but it has something to do with peace. Praise God. And Shiloh's going to come. And this is the marvelous thing, that when, when the Messiah comes, they won't need any other rulers. Messiah is going to rule forever and forever and forever, and you don't need any other children coming up to take out, uh, to take out from among them the ruler. For Messiah will live forever, and he will have the rulership forever. That's the statement that's made there. Praise God. All right. Well, that's fairly simple. So in other words, Messiah now is not only from Abraham, not only from Jacob, he's also now specifically from the tribe of Judah. That's point number five in the pedigree. Point number six then says, all right, now Judah, spread and spread and spread and spread and spread. Which man is going to actually have the Messiah in his line now? And to find that, we turn to another of the Psalms, all right, and turn with me to Psalm uh, 89. Psalm 89 where God makes promises to a certain man who was called David. David, king of Judah, king of Israel, and specifically from the tribe of Judah. And look what he says. Verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. And look what he sworn. Thy seed, singular, Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Now, what's the throne? It's rulership. Okay? To all generations means that this seed of David is going to have the rulership over the nation and he is therefore the Messiah. To check that, if you go to verse 35, it's also stated... By the way, when I come on to covenant, I'll be dealing with this. It's called the Davidic covenant in much more detail. Verse 35. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. That is what is actually stated. So there is Messiah. Now, Messiah, therefore, has got to be not only from the tribe of Judah, he's also got to be one of the descendants of David, specifically. Number seven is the one that's most devastating, because number seven limits it immediately to only one man. And I refer, of course, to number seven, which is that he's got to be born of a virgin. Messiah has. To find that, turn with me to Isaiah seven fourteen. Isaiah 7, verse 14. And in my tape on the virgin birth, I covered this verse. Therefore, we'll just read it together. All right. Verse 14. 
Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Here's the sign. Behold, a virgin, it says, shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And do you remember we saw last time that Emmanuel is not a personal name of of, uh, Messiah. Emmanuel is a title to tell you something of the job he's going to do. What is it? Emmanuel means God with us. Now, the major problem that had affected the Jews was their sin had caused a barrier between God and themselves. And the marvelous thing was that when Messiah came back, he was going to solve the sin problem. And when he solved the sin problem, it would be Emmanuel, God with us yet again. Praise God. And here is, it, here is what it says. He will be born of a virgin. In Hebrew, the word virgin is the word Alma, which usually means a virgin, but sometimes means a young woman. Sometimes. And so, of course, you get the Bible critics who come along and say, well, it just means a young woman is going to be, uh, uh, is, is going to be the mother of the Messiah. That's all it means. It's nothing to do with the virgin birth. Ah, well, we'll see. You will find that this uh, particular verse, verse 14, is quoted in the New Testament. And where it's quoted, it's translated into Greek. And when you come to this word virgin in Greek, it's the word parthenos. P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-S. Parthenos. And listen, parthenos can only mean a virgin. It never, ever, ever means a young woman. And therefore, we know that Messiah, when he comes, was going to be born of a virgin. He wasn't going to have a human father. You know the reason, one of the reasons why. Because he had to be free of Adam's sin, which was passed on through the male. And if, the, if a male had in any way caused the birth of Messiah, there, he would not be free from the sin. And if he wasn't free from sin, how could he save us from our sins? All right, now there are seven points in the pedigree of the Messiah. What we have to ask as Christians is this, does Jesus fit the bill? Because if he is, if he doesn't fit the bill, he's not the Messiah. And our faith is vain and we may as well give up believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, does he actually fit the bill? To find the answer, let's turn to Matthew and chapter 1 and beginning verse 18. Matthew 1, 18. Um, Just a little point. If I could uh, mention in verse 16, we have a statement which is very interesting. Matthew 1, let's just go quickly to verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And in the Greek, it's very interesting because the word born there is not the usual form of the verb to be born used for most parents. It's what we call the feminine singular. And the feminine singular means he was born of Mary alone. And there, in the Greek, is a major clue to the fact he's born of a virgin. Mary alone gave birth to Jesus. That's what that actually states. However, let's forget that just for the moment and begin verse 18. For here Matthew talks about the birth of the Lord Jesus. And you will notice here in Matthew, he is talking to Joseph. This is of vital importance. In Luke, he talks to Mary. Here, the angel is talking to Joseph, and we'll see why that's vitally important in just a moment. Let's just read it through, verse 18, from verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ, what does that mean? Jesus, the Messiah, was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. Espoused is a type of engagement, but not like ours. Today, when you get engaged, you can just break it off and there are no repercussions. In, except from the, uh, wife, uh, the woman's parents, of course, especially her mother. But uh, really, legally, there are no, uh, no sort of repercussions upon you. In those days, when you got engaged, it was legally binding. And if you wanted to break the engagement, you had to actually take a bill of divorce to break off the engagement. That's actually how, uh, um, how fixed engagement was. And here are Joseph and, and Mary. They are engaged to one another. That means they have a binding relationship that they cannot break except by taking legal action. 
And here she is, she's espoused to Joseph before they came together, which means they had no sexual activity whatsoever at that point. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit had caused her to conceive, is the statement that is being made here. Now that means that a virgin has conceived without, without the help of a man. This is the virgin birth that is talked about here. I'll just read on. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not being willing to make a public example, was minded to put her away privily, which means secretly. In these days, if you were actually engaged to someone and the woman turned out to be having a child, not by you, you could take her out into the public street and you could have her stoned to death. And Joseph so loved Mary that when he discovered she was pregnant and she had to break the news to him, he decided, well, look, let's travel away and secretly we'll get a divorce from one another, secretly. And then you won't be put to death and you can have the child and perhaps live outside the country. This was the idea. And it's at that point, you see, that the angel has to appear to Joseph. And the angel has to say to him, now, Joseph, look, she really has not been unfaithful to you. This child is conceived from the Holy Ghost, and he's Messiah himself. That is the statement that is going to be made. Verse 20, But while he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. That's the statement that is made. All right, let's just stop there. Now, can you see, therefore, that when Jesus was born, he was physically descended from Mary? And so we have to ask immediately, physically, does Jesus inherit the pedigree of the Messiah? All right, how do we find out? Well, we find out from the genealogies that are given. If you know your Bible at all, you would have noticed that there are two differing genealogies given for Jesus. One is in the book of Matthew, one is in the book of Luke. And the, it is quite simple to explain, and I will explain it in some detail for the rest of today. Matthew deals with Joseph's genealogy, but Luke deals with Mary's genealogy. So if we're going to test the physical pedigree of the Messiah, we've got to check up Mary's pedigree. So first of all, let's go to Luke and chapter 3. Luke and chapter 3, which gives Mary's genealogy. Now the, the uh, genealogy begins in verse 23 and is written backwards. In other words, they begin with Mary and they start progressing back ending up finally at God in about verse 38. Right, now verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, do you see that? Who supposed it? The people around supposed it. The son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Now, this is very complicated, and yet very simple if you understand Jewish genealogy. The Jews were very male-orientated. I'm sorry about that, but it was a, the, the fact in those days. And they had a little rule that no woman was ever to be named in a genealogy, ever. Well, they made a few exceptions. I say ever. They made a few exceptions, and that was um, over certain women who were famous uh, Israeli women. And they might add one or two women, uh, just really to say, and do you know who, who was my great-great-great-great-grandmother? Oh, well, she was Deborah, or something like this, you see. But it was just a swank uh, technique that you added to, to make everyone respect you. But here, generally speaking, the rule is that no woman is mentioned in a genealogy. Now, what does this mean? It means that you have a couple, a mother and a father, and say you're tracing the mother's genealogy, she's not mentioned in it. Her husband is. And so she drops from the scene. If they, they have a daughter, you actually don't mention the daughter until the daughter gets married, and then you mention her husband. And that's exactly what has happened here. Now, the Talmud tells us that the, the father of Mary was a man called Eli, E-L-I. And in the Greek, that is written, and in your Bible, it's called Heli. 
Heli was the father of Mary, but Mary married Joseph. And therefore, Mary isn't mentioned in the genealogy, but Joseph is. All right, now this is a technique you've got to get used to it, because it, uh, if you're un understanding the genealogies of the Bible, you're going to find this time and time and time and time again. Therefore, we get Joseph, Mary's husband mentioned, then Mary's father, Heli, coming along, or Eli. Now, we've got to trace it back, except I'm going to start at the end and trace it forwards. So let's begin verse 38. This is really Hebrew style, right? And notice what it says at the very bottom of verse 38, the Son of God was Adam. I'm changing it round. I'm sorry for those of you who believe in evolution. Uh, Luke did not believe in evolution. He was a very intelligent man, and perhaps he had it right. It does not say here that monkeys uh, were developed by God, and then Adam gradually developed from a monkey. All right? You may believe that's true of you. I don't believe it's true of me. God... Then Adam, notice how uncompromising it is, God, then Adam. Right, so we've established number one. Mary was indeed descended from Adam and Eve. Human, humanity at the very beginning. Right, move up to verse 36, and you've got No, N-O-E, who's that? Noah, that is. And which son of Noah? It's just above Sem, S-E-M, or Shem, S-H-E-M. It's simply the Greek way of writing the Hebrew names. So, the next one comes to pass. She is descended from a Semitic man. Verse 34, in the middle of it, you've got Abraham. At the beginning of the verse, you've got Jacob. Three and four are fulfilled. And at the end of verse 33, you've got which was the son of Judah. So now we find she is descended through the tribe of Judah. In verse 31 and at the end, you have a mention then of David, and just above it, you've got a mention of which of the sons of David Mary is descended from. Here is David, and Mary is descended from one of his sons, Nathan. So that if we write it up, we've got David, one of his sons by Bathsheba is Nathan, and then you can trace it right the way down and you come down to Mary, here, we're not so uh, anti-feminine, all right, as the genealogies of the Bible seem to be. And after Mary, then, you have the physical line leading to Jesus. And therefore, you see, Jesus' pedigree, as on the physical side, is impeccable. He is descended, indeed, through all the people that he's supposed to be descended through, via Mary. And remember this, he inherited nothing physical at all from Joseph. All right, but where does Joseph fit in? Joseph fits in in a very important place. Because it was only through the father or the husband of the woman that you could legally come into the inheritance of the family. Right? The legal inheritance came through the husband every time. And therefore, we have to ask, okay, well, what about Joseph? Does Joseph have the legal entitlement to be the father? Though he's not, of course, but the legal entitlement to actually be the father of the Messiah. That's the question we have to ask. Well, turn back to Matthew, and let's follow his genealogy through. Now, it sometimes was true in Israel that, uh, say, a woman uh, had married a man from the tribe of Ephraim, she might have had a child by that man. Therefore, the son that she has is actually from the tribe of Ephraim. Now, if he died, if he died, not the child, the husband died, and she wanted to marry again, what would happen to the son? Say she then decided she was going to marry a man from Judah. Would the son be from the tribe of Ephraim, or would the son now be from the tribe of Judah? It was very important. Well, the answer to that is it depends on whether the father wants to adopt the son or not. And if he does adopt the son, if he does, then the son loses all his natural inheritance and comes into his father's legal inheritance. But in order to adopt him, the father had to do two things. First of all, the father, who wasn't really the father, of course, he was just had married the mother, 
he had to take hold of this son and he had to name the son who he was. And can you see that this is why in verse 21 it is Joseph who is told the name of Mary's son. Look what he says, verse 21. She shall bring forth a son and thou, Joseph, shalt call his name Jesus. And here the angel was saying, it is the will of God that you adopt this as your own boy, because he's got to come into your legal inheritance. So the first thing was, Joseph had to take the child out and say, I named this son, my son, and his name is Jesus. And that would be the first thing. The second thing that he had to do, and this was vitally important, was he had to teach the boy his own trade. And the boy had to learn and become proficient in the trade of his father. And that is the reason that Jesus' father uh, took him and for 29 and a half years, 30 years of his life, trained his son in his own trade, which was the trade of carpentry. And Joseph is called the carpenter and Jesus is called the carpenter. Sometimes in the Gospels they say, is not this the carpenter's son? And in other places they say, isn't this the carpenter? And Joseph was faithful to God. He did the two things that were necessary for legal inheritance, and he legally inherited Jesus as his own son. And once that had occurred, no one could any, at any time say that that was not your son. They couldn't say, he's your adopted son. He was treated as the man's total legal son in every respect. And that is exactly what Joseph did with Jesus. First of all, named him. Secondly, he said, you're going to become a carpenter, just like I am. And he trained him in all the ways of carpentry. Fine, so we've got to check Joseph's pedigree. Now, let's check it. It's much easier. Notice uh, verse 1 of Matthew 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here's Matthew saying, look, he's the Messiah, immediately in verse 1, straight away. Let's just check it. Verse 2, Abraham. Right. That's lovely. That's number 3, correct. Uh, begat Isaac. Isaac began Jacob. Quite right. We've got the next one. Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. Why is Judah mentioned? Well, because Messiah has to come through Judah. So that's the next one, then fulfilled. If you then go down to verse 6, and Jesse begat David the king, and notice now the line continues from David, but this time not through Nathan. The line now goes down through Nathan's brother, Solomon. David had two sons by Bathsheba. One was Nathan, from which Mary and Jesus are descended. The other is Solomon, through which Joseph is descended. So we come down here, and here is Joseph. Now this means that Jesus had some genetic material from David in his blood. All right, so he was, legal, he was physically entitled to be Messiah, but Joseph had also the line from David in his background. But this is the important thing. He also had the legal right to the throne. For the throne was passed down from David to Solomon, to Rehoboam, to Abijah, to Asa, to Jehoshaphat, and so it goes right the way down. And the legal line to the throne went all the way down through to Joseph. Therefore, Jesus physically inherits from David through Mary, legally inherits then the right to Messiahship through Joseph. And then you ask the question, okay, but why therefore does he have to be born of a virgin? And here we see the magnificence in the plan of God. Because uh, it is perfectly true that the legal right to the throne was passed from David through Solomon down, but at one point in that line, a curse was put on the line. And I'm going to mark it on here as a big X. And I'm going to cancel the rest of the line under the X. A curse was put on one of the descendants of David, of Solomon, and one of the descendants that came through that line. The troublemaker is a man who's found lower down, verse 11. And Josiah, who was a wonderful king, begat Jeconias. 
Jeconias is also called Jehoiachin, but he had a nickname, a nickname that was used whenever God was displeased with him. And the nickname was this, Coniah, C-O-N-I-A-H. And if you read Coniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, it's the same man. And he was, well, the Americans would say a rat. He was a really evil man. So much so that God said, this man, Coniah, I cannot stomach him anymore. And he put a curse on Coniah and on all the descendants from Coniah on. Now to see that, turn to Jeremiah chapter 22 and let's see the curse that was put on this line. All right? Beginning verse 28. Here is the curse on Coniah. He's king, by the way, this man. He is supposed to represent God to the people around, and he's an apostate. Look what he says. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out? He and his seed are cast into a land which they know not. That's Babylon. This is Jeremiah 22, verse 28. Verse 29. Oh, earth, earth, earth. And here is God calling on the earth as his witness. Oh, earth, as long as you live, I want you to testify to what I'm about to say. And today the earth still cries out. It's amen on this particular curse. Earth, he says, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 30. Thus saith the Lord, write, and it means officially write it in the genealogy, write this man childless. Now that man had children. But to God he said, I won't have them mentioned anymore. Cut them all off. Children, grandchildren, the lot, I recognize none of them from that time on. Now can you see that's a problem? Because here we've got David coming down through Solomon. The legal right to Messiah passes down through Solomon, but suddenly you hit this man, Jeconiah, and there's a complete break because God won't recognize any of his relatives from this time on. And look how the curse goes on. It says, uh, Write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. It was a stunning and terrible curse. For what it meant was this, that the only way you could be king of Israel was to be legally and physically descended from David through Solomon through Jeconiah or Kaniah. But if you were physically descended through him, then you could never prosper on the throne of Israel. So Messiah somehow had to be from David and had to legally get the throne, but if he was physically through this line, then he couldn't be the Messiah. Now that was a terrible, terrible task. The, the Jews just looked as askance. They said, well, this is crazy. They said, here am I, I'm descended from David, I'm descended from Solomon, but unfortunately I'm descended through Jeconiah. I should be king of Israel, but I can't be. And they were stuck. How was God going to get over the problem? Quite easy, quite easy. Jesus was going to be born of a virgin, descended physically from David. He was legally going to get the right of the throne through the man who'd adopted him, that's Joseph, but he wasn't going to be descended physically from Joseph, not at all. Therefore, Jesus, funnily enough, from Jeremiah 22, is the only man who can possibly be Messiah and therefore inherit the, the throne of the Jews. This man, Jesus, is the king of the Jews. And to prove it, he's legally entitled to the throne, but he has no, absolutely no bloodline connecting him to the cursed Kaniah. And that is the second reason why the virgin birth is crucial. You throw out the virgin birth, and I'll tell you, you throw out your salvation. Any man, any Christian who says they're a fundamentalist, who says that they're born again and they reject the virgin birth, they are showing that they have no understanding of the concepts of God. All right, let's go back to Matthew 1. Matthew 1, and let's just see now the time when the name is revealed. 
Matthew chapter 1, and here he's speaking to Joseph. Here he's speaking to Joseph. And instead of calling him by a title, now the Lord, the angel here, through the, through the Holy Spirit, reveals his personal name. Look what it says, verse 21. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesu, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus was a very popular name. It was the name which in Hebrew was, jo um, well, it had several forms. Uh, the usual one was Joshua, or Hosea was another, another name. Hosea related to the same root. But actually, it's, it's the uh, name Jeshua in Hebrew. Jeshua. And Jeshua means salvation. That's what it means. And here it is, salvation. And for this reason, many of the Jewish women had guessed that Messiah's personal name would be Jesus. That's why there were many uh, children who were called Jesus. Um, right throughout the history of the Jews, Joshua. Jesus, Hosea, whatever name you wanted to give him. It meant salvation. And here's an amazing thing. Because in the Old Testament, whenever you see the word Jeshua, it's talking about Jesus. And Jesus is in the Old Testament. And not just secret, he's actually named in the Old Testament. Can I show you a verse, where, which is a beautiful verse, and where if you replace salvation with the name Jeshua, you suddenly find it's Jesus, and Jesus fits the bill. Turn with me to Isaiah, and uh, chapter 12. Isaiah, chapter 12. Last time, we, if you remember, Jesus made a statement. He said, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Which Scripture was he referring to? He was referring to this lovely verse in Isaiah 12. Verse 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. Salvation, Jeshua. Behold, God is Jeshua. There it is. God is Jesus. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has also become my Jeshua. Praise God. Jesus mentioned in the Old Testament. Verse 3, therefore, because of this statement, because he's my Jeshua, therefore with joy shall we draw water out of the wells of Jeshua, out of the wells of Jesus. And this is the scripture that Jesus was referring to, and the Jews knew it. The Jews knew it. He said, I'm Jesus Christ, and listen, he said, he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, you're going to find water flowing out of you because I'm such an abundant well and stream, praise God. This verse still applies to us. He's still the wonderful stream that we're drawing water from. Behold, God is my Joshua, and I will trust him and not be afraid. Therefore, with joy shall I draw water out from the wells of Joshua. Just another little verse. Um, turn to Psalm 9. There are so many of these, you look them up yourself, and they're wonderful to just replace the word salvation with Jeshua. Verse 13, Psalm 9, 13 and 14. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me, thou that liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praises in the gates of of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in thy Jeshua. I will rejoice in him. And here's David, down and out, but he's going to rejoice in Jesus, just as we rejoice in him today. Praise God. Who says so, salvation so different between the Old and the New Testament? When we come on to study the law, we'll find, you know, that it's extremely similar. Praise God. Very, very similar indeed. There we are. Jesus is his personal name. All right, back to Matthew 1 again, and let's just complete for tonight. Matthew chapter 1. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, verse 21, for he shall save his people from their sins. And this is literal Israel. He shall save literal Israel from their sins. And that will happen. That's what the next course of prophecy is all about. 
how Jesus comes to save Israel, praise God. That's future prophecy that we're going to deal with. The marvelous thing is that Japheth dwells in the tents of Shem. And here are we tonight. He saved us from our sins as well. We who are no people have become his people. We who had no real Lord have suddenly claimed him as our God, dwelling in the Semitic tent, the Semitic tent of Jesus. Praise God. And look what it says, verse 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, quotation of Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, that is God with us. Jesus is God, but he's going to heal the rift as well. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. Verse 25, And knew her not, there was no sexual activity, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Praise God. Lovely. And then he went, and Jesus was brought up in the carpenter's workshop, because he was going to be entitled to the legal, um, the legal right to the throne coming through David. For tonight, I'm just going to end in Luke, and we're just going to see the time when the angel appeared to Mary and declared to Mary the things that he later declared to Joseph. For in this statement to Mary, we find that he is identified, this Jesus that we worship, as the true Messiah. In other words, the angel was saying he is the one and the only one with the correct pedigree for him to save not only Israel, but the whole world from their sins. Verse 30. And we're going to end at this point. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favour with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, this is Luke 1, 31, and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. And here's what's said of him. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Praise God. Talking about Jesus there. Verse 33, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Over the house of Jacob. The question is asked, do the Jews have a future? Forever he will reign over the house of Jacob. Do the Jews have a future? Yes, forever and forever and forever. They'll always be the Jewish nation as far as this earth is concerned. Praise God. And he will rule over them forever and ever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end at all. Tonight we have the marvellous privilege of serving the only true Messiah. And we are indeed people who are members of this marvellous kingdom which shall have no end at all. And I'm one of those people that always likes to back a winner. And isn't it wonderful that that's exactly what we've done? The great Messiah, the lover of our soul, oh, the humility that he who is to be great has come down and seen me in all the sin and corruption of my life and has loved me enough to pull me up into who he is. Praise his wonderful name. Next time, we'll be dealing with the signs following the Messiah. God bless.